we all think the bag was a nice idea. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But not pointing any fingers, they could have been done better. So how about no bags this time, but next time we do the bags right, and then we go full regalia. Wait a minute. I didn't say no bags. But nobody can see. So? So it'd be nice to see. God damn it! This is a raid! I can't see, you can't see. So what? All that matters is can the fucking horse see? One and all, welcome back for the latest, not-so-greatest edition of Nick's Nonfiction. You're here with your host, Nick Muniz. We are debriefing an old head 1950s book by Paul Fussell called Uniforms. This guy's the ultimate kinkster, breaking down the power dynamics that come along with what you choose to wear. Why does the military even wear uniforms? It's to minimize the amount of casual tees. It's a book about uniforms. Of course, we're going to talk sports because you need uniformity for competition. This isn't some devoid episode of meaning where we're going to talk about vain ideas like how you look. In 2020, we adopted a muzzle as the uniform for the masses. Ever since tunics hit back in the day, Socrates Academy was determining rank by what kind of pins people had on their uniform. I bet you didn't know this, in the USSR, every civilian was required to wear a uniform. They gave little insignias and awards for people who were reposting the Soviet propaganda. That 1900s cultural Marxist didn't need a little check next to some online profile to prove you're part of the bourgeoisie. You already know I'm going deep on American culture, our lazy transfusion and how things stick. We've got a whole chapter about blue jeans, all from Paul Fussell's 1950s head. He loves to see uniforms, hates individuality, and this is all going to help us dress for Halloween 2021. It's a holiday where you can be anything you want, imposter away. I know that women love a men in uniform, that's why I'm joining MS-13. Paul Fussell says when enough people own one pair of something, it inherently becomes a uniform. And I'll sprinkle in some of these borderline magic experiments. You've heard of the cheerleader effect. If a bunch of people wear one thing, it just tricks your brain into thinking they're attractive. Wizard power emanates from their pointy-ass hats. And then, of course, Grand Wizard power emanates from one's lack of education. I hope you guys like that intro. I'm sure YouTube doesn't demonetize off the bat. We're talking about the KKK, Bloods and Crips, as you see for the cover art for the show. And I really don't have to be that analytical for this one, for God's sakes. You are not allowed to be naked outside. Even in nudist colonies, they're requiring you to wear a birthday suit. <laughs> it's illegal to wear the skin that you're born into the world with society the purification of morals like i said we're gonna get topical the 2020 mandated muzzle let's just throw out 30 years of science on early childhood development and facial cues yeah i'm sure the kids are loving the brave new world they're getting thrown into and i said i'll give it my all to get in touch with my vain side i don't care what you wear as long as you don't tell me what to wear we'll get that about the author after a word from our sponsors you know it's a, it's a weird story. I was walking down the street one day, and you know, I be looking at asses and shit, and I seen little yoga pants coming out the nail salon. So I looked, I peeped the ass out, and I was like, damn, she thick as fuck. Turn around, TT. 
I was like, damn, nigga, what you doing out here with all this ass? Double cheeked up on a Thursday afternoon, hella ass, the sun is still out, my nigga, and it, it was just, it, it, I, I, don't, I don't know what I mean. That's the home. And welcome back. Make sure you are checking out those hikes. We're on the Continental Divide, baby. We are 13,000 feet in the air on those damn things. And the memes just keep getting funnier over on Instagram, at Harry Schwant. Paul Fussell was alive 1924 to 2012. He's an American cultural and literary historian and author and university professor. Served in the 103rd Infantry Division during World War II. Was wounded in France. Got a purple heart and a bronze star. They were about to send him over to the Pacific when they got news that the bomb dropped. And so Paul Fussell wrote his first big essay, Thank God for the Atomic Bomb. Pretty sure this guy's never seen <laughs> Dr. Strangelove or he just didn't get the point. You will learn to love the atomic bomb. It's sarcasm. You're not actually supposed to enjoy Japanese men getting microwaved. I'm pretty sure my grandpa, we found out recently, was an electrician during World War II. I got to see his old helmet and it had these two little lightning bolts on the side. That means he's an electrician, right? He moved to uh, Princeton. He went to UPenn and had three different wives. Paul Fussell is in the Ken Burns documentary, The War. Ken Burns, his most famous one is Vietnam. He also has a World War II one. Paul Fussell is dropping knowledge in. I know you want the damn memes. Paul Fussell, guy's a curmudgeon, loves uniformity. Subscribe, you cheapskates. We can get to the content faster. Here's an ad. <laughs> Chapter 1, Military Uniforms. Soviet Russia was the one nation during World War II whose civilians were also required to wear uniforms. USSR, doctors, lawyers had signifying flair. Students and teachers were also awarded flair for their conformity. While to here, you didn't even need that check mark next to your name. Nicholas II was the Russian czar who designed that quasi-military cap and it was adopted through fashion channels at first. It's the hat that Che Guevara wore. It's like a, looks like a train conductor hat, but smaller. It's really ugly. And isn't it funny now that the uniform for a half-educated socialist is a Che Guevara t-shirt? <laughs> Nicholas II was a smart czar. He made this ugly-ass hat, but then he gave it to the opinion leaders in Russia like I'm saying, the diffusion of people's morals is always the same. The guy that you're looking up to, they tell him to post, I got vaccinated. Hey, did you see people are getting paid to make those posts online? In USSR Russia, they gave the quasi-military caps to the opinion leaders. So then the people were like, okay, we're all socialists. We love wearing our jumpsuits. In 1917, the Red Revolution, there's that famous story when all the commoners got their hands on the Bolsheviks first thing they did was rip the shoulder boards off of their uniforms. Russia, I mean all militaries, the shoulder boards are a really big way to identify rank. So it's symbolic. They're trying to tear all that shit down. Whereas the way this hierarchy gets implemented is through channels or leaders of opinion is what they're called. 
And Fussell said after the 1917 Red Revolution, the Cossack jazz musicians adopted the style of the padded shoulder. So it was after World War One. they're like, we're never going to war again. We're all playing jazz, being fun like the Americans. And they tried to pimp out the military uniform, make a joke out of it. Obviously, it doesn't last. The World War II USSR uniforms are that much hardcore Soviet elegance. And this has to make you pause and question, what the hell is going on with marching band uniforms? <laughs> is the designer blind? Who thought to put a fuzzy dildo on top of a top hat? I have some regrets of my own. No, I never draped myself with a marching band uniform. But I like to go into these military consignment shops all the time. And recently I saw a USSR long coat. It was $100. This thing would have kept me warm for winters on end. It had the classic red piping around the wrists, around the uh, collar. And it's like that olive green that all the Russian officers wore. This coat had a embroidered hammer and sickle on it. It had brass buttons. I would have worn this thing to friggin' funerals, to weddings. That's the fucking drip right there. Soviet style. You know, I'd be rolling up to paintball, <laughs> ready to command. The Soviets said they had the grace to outshine the other armies without looking like a marching band. Let's move on to the German way. These guys are all about efficiency and intimidation over acknowledgement of class. They have a history of unique clothing. Go back to the leaner hosens or to the medieval monk robes. Throughout the 30s, German municipalities still had executioners who performed their function via axe. They had this guy dressed to the nines, tuxedo, white tails. He had a tie on and a silk top hat. I mean, this guy better be dressed nice. He's about to send you to the afterlife. Fussell didn't touch on World War One, but those German helmets? <laughs> I mean, who was designing those? This is trench warfare. The worst thing you want to wear is a hat with a beacon on the top. German World War II uniforms, now that's another story. The Waffen-SS division once retreated in violation of higher-up orders, so Hitler confiscated all of their cufflinks. I'm pretty sure it was War is a Racket that we read where Smedley Butler was saying the Italian armies had the model for armies of the past, like the Persians, Alexander the Great's army, they paid you based on how well they did. And then when Napoleon tried to take over the world, he was so close to being successful, all of the generals started saying, we need to start giving out these little awards, like fighting for valor. It's hijacking the human reward system to not pay them for the work that they do, but it actually works. Like Hitler obviously was one of the most dogmatic leaders ever, and he was confiscating the Waffen's cufflinks. And I'm sure I'm on some neo-Nazi watch list for looking up all this information. I also found an SS leather overcoat on eBay. That one was only $750. <laughs> but you can't have the Hitler, the Nazi stuff, because when you invite a girl over after the bar, is that an SS flag you have hanging up in your room there? Yeah, I'm just really into history. <laughs> Hitler, this guy loved sociology. The idea that Ubermensch, he was reading his Nietzsche. He implemented cultural conditioning to a degree that no other general or leader was able to do. Look at the Aryan youth. That's basically what the Boy Scouts is. You're militarizing young men. Go watch a Jojo Rabbit. You're getting young men ingrained into obeying the social rank of the military and talking to Hitler as your imaginary friend. 
as author, he's recommending Kurt Vonnegut's book, Madly Theatrical. It's all about the sociological effects that wearing a uniform. Like, uh, go read the Stanford Prison Experiment. They take 12 college kids, gave six of them warden uniforms, six of them prison jumpsuits. Within a day, they're acting like prisoners and then owners. It's wild what clothes do to people. (laughs) Nazi Germany. First country to use rubber boots over leather boots. They're probably scarred from World War One in the trenches with the feet rotting away. So then they invented the duck boot, which now girls who call you a Nazi like to wear while they're writing their piece for BuzzFeed. Learned in Hell's Angels that the Nazis would also blitzkrieg on motorcycles. So these guys were burning more than one type of rubber. How come they don't make car tires out of leather? How c- <laughs> Yo, if I was going to command an army, the Nazis were pretty close. You want them wearing black leather, looking intimidating. I want my army to dress up like Kiss. Like Gene Simmons spitting fire, revving up on a Harley Davidson with an MP40. If you look at a Bastille Day in France, every single year they have a big old protest to say to the government, Hey, you guys are subservient to us. At 2020 Bastille Day, the French government... (laughs) They let out a hoverboard cop. And, like, you know, we already have these. There's this guy at LAX who's already hovering around. But they have this hoverboard, and there was a guy with an AR-15 just above the French crowd. Look this thing up. I'll have a picture on the YouTube. Intimidation is really big when it comes to uniformity. The USA, (laughs) what do we do for war? We paint pride flags on our fighter jets, right? So very intimidating. We used to paint those sharks on our planes during World War II. A little off topic, but this also makes sense. How come we value science over history? History just keeps repeating and repeating and repeating, and nobody does anything to stop it. Science, you could pay to have any outcome be the result of your study. How come we value one of these academics more than the other? I'm just saying, we're still wearing uniforms out here. After Hitler did the brown shirts, Mussolini did the black shirts. It goes back further than that. I'm saying history repeats. Himmler derived the SS dress uniform from the Jesuits. (laughs) Back in the blue. It's going to be looked at in history as backing the silk top hat executioner. I'm even scared of goth teenagers, the way that they're dressing in all black. It's effective. Do you know that cops used to have black uniforms? They had to switch it up because of all the friendly fire. They turned to blue. There's a study later about how it made people feel safe. But cops, in theory, are there to protect property. I would say they are on the offense now. In the suburbs, they're on like a press defense. After program 1033, you could see... Police are going to be riding around on hoverboards not very long. There's a chapter about the police later. We won't go into deep. This guy Joseph Goebbels had a diary. He was a German officer. He said that on the weekends, the Germans would wear Roman tunics and sandals just to go to operas and attend feasts. Like, the Nazis was a true Reich, an empire attempt. These secret societies, they believe in the power of clothes. Just go watch Eyes Wide Shut. Go eat grapes in a robe this week and you're going to feel like a Greek emperor. How come Nancy Pelosi wears a dashiki? That bitch needs a push-up bra. She doesn't need this shamanic power. (laughs) If you really want to go deep on symbolism, go back and watch the 2012 Olympic ceremony. Some of the creepiest shit. That was the one in London. 
there's like giant marionettes of doctors and hundreds of hospital beds they just reeled, wheeled out onto the track. It's terrifying. Symbolism is the real deal, and it takes place in the clothes that we wear. Last part of the chapter here was about Japan. We gave them the Versailles treatment after World War II. You know, you're not allowed to have an army. You're going to try to invade the Pacific again. Japan starts a culture of business uniformity. So in Japan, you're only allowed to wear a dark color suit with a white shirt underneath it. It's shameless in America. You know, you got guys about to go do multi-million dollar deals rolling up in capris. Fucking douchebags with their high and tight haircuts and skinny suits. <laughs> Yo, what I want more than a child, what I want more than anything is a zoot suit. Do we remember these from the 90s? It's the ultimate fuck you to business culture. It's a triple quintuplet XL suit. <laughs> I think Fat Joe and Big Pun still wear these around, <laughs> but it's just a fitted suit for those guys. Yeah, you gotta kind of mock the uniform to do it the best way. Japan, they've been obeying to this strict uniform for almost a hundred years now, and the origins of the kinky schoolgirl outfit is still a mystery. That's basically it for the military. Moving along to chapter two, blue jeans. Paul Fussell said that jeans are freedom from the conventional Sunday slacks. You got to remember, Europe was too uptight for Puritans. So they had to come to America to let it cut loose. In America, we were just dying to ditch the pleated pants as soon as we got here. As soon as Levi Strauss got some nice denim blends together for us, we were ready to throw it on the list of Americana, jazz, Hollywood, Coca-Cola, blue jeans. When everyone owns at least one pair of something, you've got a uniform. Blue jeans basically are our Soviet jumpsuit. Levi Strauss branded it perfect. He was an Austrian immigrant born in the 1830s, left his parents in New York to try to pan gold out in the West. Gold mining requires heavy-duty trousers, so he started with a thick brown denim supplied from San Francisco, worked out all these cheap labor paths that he could go down to Central America, and they also had cheaper blue denim in Central America. He links them up with his distributor in North Carolina. And good thing blue was cheaper. Honestly, it'd be a pretty drab country if all of us were wearing around those mechanic brown jeans. Next to cigarettes and boots, a pair of Levi's was the most stolen item in the Wild West. Not even your horse or your revolver. People would steal the pants right off your ass. And so he said that leisure wear starts in order to prevent the theft. On your day off, you didn't just leave your jeans in your locker. You were wearing them around town. And then, as time went on, the crotch and the rear started to get tighter and tighter. And this became a staple of the Levi's. And it's definitely a staple of American clothes. It's the opposite of the monkish flowing puritanical robes that we came here with. You know, you had to hide all your curves in Europe. And the way we're going, we're going to be painting on clothes. This is where the image of the cowboy with the denim comes from, the assless chaps. Cowboy era was a flare era of jeans because nobody wanted to show off how expensive their boots were. This is like a true gangsters move in silence. You don't want to be stunting your rims. Someone's going to steal your shit or just kill you to steal the shoes off your feet. Real gangsters aren't flaunting their wealth around. They're wearing flare jeans. You know, as 
jeans hit critical mass of skinniness in the 80s. Everybody was showing off a bulge. We need to bring that back. Baggy jeans then started to get big in the counterculture scene. Punk rockers, skateboarders, they're all wearing these flowy baggy jeans. But you're still kind of playing into the thing. It's like me wearing the zoot suit. I like how nowadays you got skaters wearing cargo pants. You're just totally going against it, whatever. Or just don't wear pants if you're really trying to make a statement. Tennis shoes are basically as American as jeans are. Like, Europe is knockoff America. <laughs> you watch, like, European media, it feels like they are in an off dimension because all of their shoes are, like, Nikolage, Adidas, all of these freaking knockoff brands. <laughs> Tennis shoes are just an example of our transfusion of culture we get lazy and we just start wearing our soccer cleats around <laughs> you know sweatpants are probably the best american invention of all time and then you had europe was wearing joggers since the french bastille storming they were running in their friggin three striped adidas pants that never caught on in america i'm not wearing no faggy skinny sweatpants get that shit out of here and then rappers started wearing joggers, so all the it got into our culture lazily and slowly. It never caught on, those really baggy joggers. It's like a Canadian knockoff. You got Justin Bieber wearing these ones that go down to his knees. It looks like he's sagging, but there's just extra cloth in these pants. That shit's just ugly. It's like a Kanye West clothing line. There's just holes in the t-shirt. <laughs> this is the hobo line. Our trends are just lazily mixing in different parts of life. Spam? Yeah, throw ham in a can. And now it's on every American aisle. Germans are good at creating uber words. Americans are good at creating uber culture. You know, no one put peanut butter and chocolate together before a Reese's cup. Since our media leads the conversation, we can inject all kinds of global culture that either sticks or it doesn't. I think we used this power for good for the first 40 or 50 years. You know, we won World War II, 50s to the 80s. Everyone's watching I Love Lucy. We got everybody addicted on the skinny crotch jeans. Today, we are using this power for evil. I don't think anyone in America finds it cool to have transgender story time at the library or to be doing a full month of pride. Like, we kind of deserve our stamp on the forehead yeah america you're the gay country now and it's just all the corporations trying to whore us out and make an extra dollar the coolest trends we start in america are on accident it's not these labeled t-shirts that nike and adidas make for us it's in the 1990s when all of the hot wives get tricked into sleeping with the bikram yoga guy and now 20 years later all of our wives are wearing leggings to funerals you know what I'm saying? We get so lazy, we wear our cleats, and we wear our tight-ass pants around that it just becomes our thing. I'm saying sweatpants, the 1920s champion, the boxing company, they invented the first hoodie. And people in the 20s were like, well, I'm supposed to be sweating in this and losing. No, this is comfy. I'm going to wear it on the couch to eat chips. People should start wearing boxing mitts around the way we don't understand where our culture comes from saying Justin Bieber with these weird Canadian knockoffs they can never get the transfusion right it's got to be a truly American accident that comes out of laziness <laughs> sagging it'll be gone it'll come back flat brim caps they go they come back just as jeans flare 
and tighten up. And the baseball cap is an American staple that Fussell missed. We'll end it on that. Go to chapter three, Postal Police. There's a long tradition of the messenger being as presentable as the message he bears. You've seen Amazon has decided to stop paying for trucks. They hire people individually to drive their car and deliver Christmas presents in a tracksuit. Yes, a tradition of the messenger being as good as the... He's probably delivering sex toys. So yeah, you don't have to look like Santa. Postal workers are known for taking pride in their shorts and their freakish calves. They have that corporate motto, rain, sleet, or hail. The uniform implies that you can be trusted, and that way you are treated better. Not by dogs, at least. All of this rhetoric is supposed to make you proud of your uniform. I said before, you got to trick people with your clothes because everyone's so vain. Most people aren't going to get on a plane where the pilot is wearing ripped skinny jeans. They have the center stripe on the side of the shorts, which is modeled after the Marine service uniform. And just like the military, postal workers are not permitted to stop off for a beer in uniform. Each worker a year is given $300 for a postal allowance so you could spend on their in-house service uniforms. You know, Mick Dollars. They're creating their own currency to buy their clothes. They used to wear old-fashioned visor caps like the police officers, and now it's a baseball cap. In the delivery community, the only one that's really different is UPS, who has those brown uniforms, which is supposed to be an unattractive color. It seems like women can't get enough of those UPS guys. World War II, the North African soldiers had to wear brown uniforms, and everybody loathed it. Lowest morale ever on the North African front. Color is supposed to really play into how you feel seeing just a sea of brown. 1991, Stan Herman designed the FedEx delivery workers' uniform. You know, it looks like the Burger King cashier. Everybody knows the thing in between the E and the X, there's an arrow. Stan Herman also created the design for the McDonald's uniforms. Those change like every 20 years. Whatever era we're in of McDonald's currently, I don't like it. It's middle-aged McDonald's. It's this gross, brutish architecture. It's coming back from USSR architecture. That's actually where the brutish design comes from. How come Target all of a sudden is gray? How come McDonald's, you know, it's not this colorful playground with Nintendo 64s in the lobby like when I was a kid. It's being turned into this machinized void of culture place. And I know I'm an American here saying McDonald's is our culture. It is. You got to own it at a certain point. How come these Stan Herman designers are making it so sad? Like it is obvious a transition into a period of no individuality. Uniform McDonald's. I'm thinking of Sloan Lake, if we have any locals. It's a Denver reference. There's a, like, it's a beautiful lake that overlooks the entire front range of the Rockies. So on a clear day, you could see all the way back to the Divide. Recently, they built a target in front of it. So in front of this God-given view, there's just a giant red target. And the entire front of the building. It wasn't even that old. It's now just this dray grab stamp on this divine site. Who designed this target marquee to ruin nature for everybody for hundreds of years? <laughs> like this Stan Herman that Paul was talking about. 
he designed the uniforms for Frontier Airline as well as American Airline. Hmm, that makes no sense. The two biggest competitors are actually being designed by the same person. <laughs> the illusion of choice. If you don't get thrown in airplane jail, you could count on being quarantined by a police officer, which is what the rest of this chapter is about. Paul is wondering why police uniforms aren't brown, light blue, why not red or green? The designers wanted to emulate an army that was notable, unbribable, and courageous. So the blue comes from the Union Navy. Civil War, Union soldiers, these guys were some of the bravest people on earth. You would have died on old iron sides, a fiery death. These guys were known to be unbribable, courageous, so they're saying the cops should probably try to take on this persona. And it worked for a little bit. You got the exact opposite over in England, the uh, red coats. Red is supposed to be a color of rage. It gets you all mad. And that's got to be why those people try to get in the faces of those cops that can't break face outside of Buckingham Palace. They said when they tried gray uniforms with an omission of a utility belt, it had the most significant positive reaction. So we would have a lot less cop brutality if they were wearing all gray and they didn't have a weapon. Like even since the beginning of history, you shook a guy's right hand to make sure that he wasn't armed. And the reason a cop asks you to lift your shirt is so that they could see your waistline. People feel safe when you can see that guy does not have a weapon on him. Special Response Corporation in Baltimore designed modern police battle dress. You guessed it, they're using armor that is interchangeable with NATO troops. Australia is scaring the absolute piss out of me right now. This is obviously what's coming to America. They're going to interchangeably switch out the cops for the UN so then all of us can become one nation. I'm saying here, this has been a plan for a long time. I've mentioned on the show program 1033, Obama made it so every cop department gets all of the military runoff of equipment. So yeah, the cops are going, I said, going to be on the silver surfer board, stealing the galaxy, pumping lead into anybody who wants to have a heretical idea. Read up on this program 1033 shit. All obsolete military gear becomes part of the police armory. They have this NCT. It's a self-healing fabric. Now, the only reason I know about this shit is because I'm looking into tents. I want a really nice one for when I get killed by Bigfoot in the woods. This tent thing, if it gets stabbed by a leaf, it automatically heals back up. Is this like a biological tent? What the hell is going on? The police uniform has this NCT fabric. <laughs> I mean, these guys are on the next level. This special response corporation he was talking about in Baltimore, they have a union buster uh, division. And so they're like arming people to then go break up the uh, meat lobby. Remember Upton Sinclair? He was trying to show you that there's fingers in your hot dog this special response corporation since the 1930s has been arming people to bust up unions <laughs> i've been saying we need some of these books about like the colorado minor militias there's a hidden history in this state alone the usa has more sovereign history than you'll be taught in public school and because science is greater than history it's going chapter four clash of clans <laughs> It's our KKK chapter. 
and these guys do not give out information readily. The chapters of the KKK are less coordinated than people are reported. How do you even get your first invitation to a clans meeting? You just got to be letting N-words fly around the right people for recruiting events. I bet they go to black movie theaters and talk to all the white people after. <laughs> Pulaski, Tennessee, 1886. A bunch of ex-soldiers dressed as ghosts of the Confederates that died to try to go intimidate Union soldiers who killed their brothers. This was following up the Battle of Bull Run and the Battle of Shiloh. It was kind of a one-time event until the media picked it up and it turned into something bigger. Wikipedia said that the first lynching was in 1882 by the KKK. So that's four years before the KKK ever existed. There's too much misinformation about these emotional topics. But at least Paul Fussell went out of his way to meet a grand wizard. There's all these videos online of who's the black guy he goes around to kkk chapters and unbrainwashes the people and it's just proof these people aren't evil they're just stupid <laughs> like it's um indoctrination of the worst kind just being passed down he did drop an n-bomb he said their heyday the kkk was 1886 to 1920 they were lynching jewish people and hispanics at the same rate as blacks it's like Hell's Angels book we read about the devolution. What started as guys trying to avenge their brothers for war just got too big and violent. So everybody latched on to this movement. Yes, I'm defending the origins of the KKK. Does that happen? How do we not hear more often about like five years after a civil war? There must be families just lynching each other on bro both sides. And like they said, the original runs were just to get back at soldiers who killed their brothers. It had nothing to do with race. United States Clans of America Incorporated was founded in Tuscaloosa. And they were just like an ACLU punching bag through the 20s. Um, like if you are going to be the Freemasons or one of these groups that is not supposed to exist, you don't want to create a political action committee. So now you could start being sued and everything. It just doesn't make sense. It kind of seems like a subversion. Janet Williams Goshen was this lady out of, like, Ohio. And up into the 90s, she was sewing silk sheets. She was an ordained minister and a gun nut. And she said she doesn't support the Klan. What, she's just an unethical capitalist? <laughs> like, who else was going to do business with the Klan lady? During the Great Depression of the 30s, men were more easily propagandized to join the Black Legion. And a lot of people don't know about this. The Black Legion is like the super KKK. They're like, if you even run across a black person in the streets, you got a duel on sight, son. This is a cross-population of the worst guys throughout American history, the Black Legion. I'm a man of the non-aggression principle. These guys got me wanting to join. They said that their mission is to end isms. They're like, we're ending communism. We're ending Catholicism. We are a group to end all groups. This is kind of a paradox, right? How does one abolish abolitionism? How are we going to abolish electromagnetism? <laughs> Physics is canceled during the Red Scare in America. McCarthyism. The Black Legion stood on the Federal Reserve staircase and they were saying, we are dissolving the Fed immediately. None of us stand for the same thing. Why are you taking all of our money and acting like it's all going through the same thing? 
And then, 10 years later, the Black Panthers stood on the stairs of the Federal Reserve. So do we see what's going on here? All of these groups, while they are organizing based on their melanin content, they all want the same thing. And yeah, the Black Legion is too hardcore for the KKK, who's too insane for the ACLU. All of you guys want to see the Federal Reserve dissolved. <laughs> I mean, every group is a group to end all groups, as long as my group gets to stay alive. The Red Scare, the Black Legion, none of these groups are as bad as you think they are. It's just when they start clashing with the other ones, you gotta euthanize all of them so they don't burn down your store. <laughs> Repetition of the summer riots. I'm not talking about one event in particular. Let's end this one with some Sun Tzu. He says, knowing what you're fighting for is harder to know than who you are fighting against. So it's much easier to point a finger at some other people in uniform. Yep, that's our enemy. Than it is to get introspective and say, wait, why am I burning crosses? I have a weird hunch that a lot of clansmen aren't being introspective. Let's go to chapter 5, sports. Ever go to a sports practice where the coach forgot the pennies? It gets real hectic trying to remember who's on your team. Remember when you got the smelly penny and how bad you would play? You need cleanliness and uniformity for sports. 1945 to 1955, the Boston Red Sox had their iconic Red Sox logo, and 55 was when they changed to the B and sold a ton of merchandise. That B has like four Bs inside of it. It's a really well-designed logo. 1975, they switched back to all red. And they knew they were going to go back to the B eventually. They just created an entirely new temporary sale. They're pumping and dumping on all of their own fans. Baseball gets its uniform from cricket. They were strict at first. They had the big numbers on the back, which had to be standardized size for every single team. It doesn't really matter. When you think about it, sports-wise, basketball is the only sport where you need to have numbers on the back so that the referee can say who did the foul. But again, when you're in the NBA, you know everybody's name. Saying let's put like pictures on the back or something cool. <laughs> it ebbs and flows just like fashion in baseball. They had the baggy pants, then they have the tight pants. It's only when you have a big poppy that you have someone who's defining the entire league and people will catch along with the rhythm. Or you have individual ball clubs like the Yankees saying you're not allowed to have a beard. So the uniform can be come part of your biological flesh. Bud Selig, held in high regard by all of baseball enthusiasts, he was the league commissioner, he held out on sponsorship. So if someone else had been in control, you would have been seeing the New York Budweiser's playing the friggin' Pennsylvania Trojans. And those were two actual sponsors that tried to get them. The Army, the Navy, and the Air Force made Bud Selig an offer that he could barely refuse I'm happy about this, you know. America is supposed to be the corporate whore, so it kind of doesn't make sense that we don't look like a soccer field. You know, you got the Tottenham Pfizers playing the Manchester United Airline. <laughs> Those are some of the ugliest uniforms in the world. You can't even tell who's playing it. It looks like two airlines. The USA. I guess we are filling our port there when it comes to NASCAR. <laughs> That's like what our future fashion is going to look like. I have a bit about this. If you ever see me on stage, I'm going to do it. Nike, Adidas, they have all these shirts. Don't sweat my swag. 
your workout is my warm up. I'm not going to do the bit here. It's all just corporate whoring. I mean, <laughs> nothing revolutionary here, but there's that old story if you ever heard the Zimbabwe basketball team in 2016 they couldn't afford entry to the Olympics, so they held a sports drink sponsorship to design their uniform. And they came to the Olympics looking like a clown. At least they got to play, though. That's the price of entry, right? A better story like that is the Mountain Dew Challenge online. Mountain Dew is coming out with a new flavor, and they told all of their fans, hey, vote on a new flavor name, and whatever the internet chooses, we will make it. And so the one that got the number one votes from all of the gamer-drinking Dew heads was Hitler Did Nothing Wrong. And that was the name of the new Mountain Dew flavor. That's what happens when you let people in control of what they're going to wear or drink. So maybe we do need a top-down <laughs> quasi-military cap to get strangers to chant silly words in unison in a stadium. That's got to take a lot of power of uniformity. A couple more stats here at the end of the chapter. The average football player in 1892 only weighed 148 pounds. That was back when they were wearing leather helmets. They had minimal pads. Everybody's ears were ripped. They said in the Journal of American Culture, thigh and shoulder pads started to get bigger, and so then bodybuilding followed the form. And whose opinion is this? Can we trust it completely? They're trying to say that as football gained in popularity, men started doing more squats and upper body exercises. But then you look deeper into where football is designed after. Their padding is designed after medieval horseback armor. What, we should mix up polo and football and the quarterback now has to be on horseback? Not much commentary we're getting here, just a couple quips from Paul Fussell. He mentioned the Miami Dolphins and the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders and how it has a different function than like the sweater-wearing cheerleaders with the megaphone you have at your high school. One is supposed to distract you during a break, and one's supposed to actually make you more into the sport. And the chapter on some fun things I looked up. They took a lot of sports out of the Olympics over the years. And, you know, they say the Olympics, it has to be speed, agility, and athletic ability. Well, how about horse long jump? How much human athletic ability do you need for that? Tug of Wars was in the Olympics for 20 years. They had this thing called Plunge for Distance. I would like to watch that. In the 1900s, they did croquet. This was the most leisurely sport they ever had. They did tandem bicycles from 1906 to 1970. Pigeon shooting. They, they actually shot birds in the Olympics. If they did this in Japan 2021, they would have ate it afterwards. They had dueling pistols. This was the coolest one by far. No one was badass enough to start shooting each other. They had fake pistols that shot wax at dummies. That would have been sick. Who's the best gunslinger on the globe? America wins every single time. Ended the chapter saying, the most unchanged uniform over the years is actually fencing armor. Chapter 6 here, Academia. We're picking up pace, Act 3 of the book. He says, like you iron out your uniform, a fraternity ideally irons out the wrinkles in one's personality. He says they promote individuality, although fraternities are culture factories, you know, sorority girls are clones. Fraternities are older than America. 
our oldest academic institutions are on this work hard, play hard bullshit, as well as paddling compulsory over drinking and jackass style stunts. Soiree science is all part of the fraternity uniformity. Word soup. 1862, the Land Grant Act established state universities. So you got Skull and Bones, the Porcelains, the Q Dogs in the 1860s. Like there's a lot of money being put aside that people could waste on drinking. You know, these fraternities actually donate more than they actually wind up siphoning from the school. Networking is a truly beneficial skill and organization tool that these groups give to kids. Skull and Bones is swing billions of dollars worth of influence. More importantly, I would say these places drive culture. Like these preppy looks, wearing five friggin' uh, polo shirts underneath one another. It's where all these things take off. Like a tenth of viral TikToks or meme trends start in fraternity houses. This is before Americana. If you've ever heard a party theme with a uniform, it probably comes from a frat house, tight and bright, duck calls and overalls, douchey bros, slutty hoes. England private schools still require black tailcoats. Like, remember Madeline? That What was it about? A girl who was an orphan and she was at a boarding school. That's a fucking double whammy right there. Chapter about academia. And again, there's no history on like those plaid skirts or whatever the whole classic uniform is. I still had to wear uh, clothes, uniforms in gym class. This is the creepiest part about school. All right, all you kids... Get together, go into this cold windowless room, and get naked. Uh, alright. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot more he's missing in terms of academia. Like, you got professors who turned on the cardigans. Friggin' penny loafers were wedged into society through educators. Academia has a big effect on what people be wearing. Let's go to chapter 7. Chefs. One page chapter here. Doctors and chefs have the same ability to change ill to well and well to ill. I could say the same for scientists. Either way, if you're a scientist or a doctor or a chef, are you going to be doing open brain surgery or cooking a deep red marinara with a white on? It makes no sense. What he's going is, in the history of cheflyhood, all white is supposed to display obsessive cleanliness. And Fussell is saying, these people are chemists. They're mixing together organic matter to make molecular combinations. Very poetic way to say, if you got a couple different colors on your shirt, it shows how hard you're working. Law requires cooks to cover their hair nowadays, which is not a sufficient explanation for that droopy-ass hat. The famous story goes King Henry VIII guillotined one of his chefs because he had a hair in his meal. So then every chef afterward was required to wear that dang muffin top, and it became synonymous with cooking. Even some gourmet French restaurants require the line cooks to wear the toque, but that devalues the whole thing. It's supposed to be one guy wearing the silly hat. Line cooks, their buttons on their shirts are only plastic, whereas the chefs have metal buttons on their jackets. Today, those hats, they're only made out of paper for a one-time use. I imagine it'd be pretty hard to get those hats dry cleaned. And it's been this minimal design for 200 years. As I said, white is supposed to convey obsessive cleanliness. I read um, 
Orwell down and out in London, and he said he would cook throughout some of the dirtiest restaurants in Paris, and even those guys said that they had worked somewhere dirtier. Think about it. The top culinary school in the country is called CIA. Yeah, chefs can be pretty militant in their organization and their looks. Let's go to chapter 8 here, our second to last, Nurses. Another one-page chapter from Mr. Fussell. It's a short book. It'd be pretty easy for you guys to read. When it comes to nurses, they wear those iconic white shoes and pantyhose. They started out with navy blue capes and white folded hats. It's a relic of pornography past. If you're whacking it to a porno where the chick has a cape on in the hospital, man, are you sure this is not (laughs) a cave drawing? The nurses were originally meant to just blend in with moppers and trash collectors. And the students, like nurse students, had always been dissatisfied since women got into academia. Capping is now pinning at nurse graduation because they don't have the hats anymore. Women said they didn't want to feel subordinate to doctors anymore. So now they get to wear scrubs. Um, You know, every nurse is a crime-fighting superhero. So I guess this evened out. You don't want to have to go to medical school or take on $400,000 worth of debt to be a doctor. That's all right. You're every bit as much of a hero as a doctor is. What did Buddy from The Incredibles say? If everyone's a hero, no one is. Pinning is the big ceremony for the nurses. On their pin, it includes their name, their academic degree, and their medical specialty. It goes above the left breast. As for the history, the original white design comes from 1830s Prussia. And they were trying to make the nurses give off a feeling of nunship, like purity, much like the cleanliness. A girl is a whore if she's wearing a bunch of bright colors. And you would get scorned by other women in the 1800s if you weren't wearing white or black. Prussia is where those uh, bonnets come with the chin strap, old school German sexlessness, dignity, professionalism they're trying to show you. How did it go from that to the sexy candy striper? And now wokeness ruined that, you know, the ladies. You probably got married to a lot more doctors when you were wearing that hot uniform. At least you could see some big asses in the scrubs nowadays. (laughs) I mean, scrubs used to be like the performance wear for doctors. They only put it on when they were going into an intense surgery. And nurses, our lazy transfusion of culture, just hijacked that. Some people don't know is that scrubs used to be all red. And it's just to hide blood stains. <laughs> now you know it's the blue. That when they get blood on it, it turns black. I don't know why I know that. Think about it. You'd have to change doctors if you ran into yours off-duty and he's wearing like a tank top. He's got fucking flip-flops. Dr. Flip-flop. Vanity. It's a good way to make money make people feel secure that you have their health in your hands. Let's go to our final chapter for the day. Nine Brides. In the 1840s, Queen Victoria was marrying Prince Albert. She went with an all-white wedding dress while Prince Albert went with his own fashion statement. (laughs) Do we know? Is the guy who's credited with being the first to pierce his own penis. (laughs) Queen Victoria made just as big of a statement. White was associated with virginity, and up until that time, brides would wear red, black, purple, whatever the hell they wanted. As the Victorian era ensued, brides 
from privileged backgrounds would also wear white to show. Hey, I'm wealthy enough to buy this one piece of clothes that I only wear once. So I think we should really go back to like um, around the holidays, they sell men's suits that are like Halloween themed, Christmas themed suits. This is what women need to go back to in terms of wedding dresses because it's supposed to show I'm rich enough to only wear this thing once. <laughs> so you have to wear the topical wedding dress. We've got a little fucking poem here. Married in white, you'll have chosen all right. Married in gray, they'll go far away. Married in black, you'll wish yourself back. Married in red, you'll wish yourself dead. Married in blue, you'll always be true. Married in pearl, you'll live in a whirl. Married in green, ashamed to be seen. Married in yellow, ashamed of the fellow. Married in brown, you'll live out of town. Married in pink, your spirits will stink. Your spirits will sink. That's it. And it shows you all these, like, uh astrology signs that come along with what color you wear i was looking up what colors scientists say make people feel subconsciously refreshed and excited bright yellow and red are supposed to make you alert and irritated that's the mcdonald's siren deep greens and blues are supposed to make you feel calm maybe why you feel at ease when you're out amongst the alpine trees who knows if there's any truth to all that type of stuff. Uh, we do know that if there is strobing lights, you could give people seizures. So there's definitely some correlation between color and bodily reaction. Paul is complaining here at the end that women are doing low cutbacks. You're supposed to look like a nun when you get married. Old traditions are going to die hard. He says don't embalm your wedding dress because it's going to lose its value. Like wood gives off acid over time a lot of people don't know if you have a giant wooden armoire the lion the witch and the wardrobe this is going to warp all of your clothes and it's going to smell good like wood it's going to lose the color said wedding dresses have become as big an industry as funeral homes i would agree with that women are dying to get into that dress paul fussell you fought in world war ii you have a purple heart you put a book together Thank you for all of the above. That was Uniforms. Ladies and gentlemen, another edition of Nick's Nonfiction here. You gotta be on that Patreon. We are getting at least one or two videos a month up there. Whip clips, hikes, it's reaching new heights. Next time on the show, we have our November-themed edition. We're celebrating the most glorious American holiday, Thanksgiving. In seven short days, we have Mark Kurlansker's Salt. This is the author that goes deep on individual topics autistically. This guy does not stop. You put one item in front of him, he will be busy for a year. It's not going to be one of our nutritional episodes like Fast Food Nation or Pure White and Deadly. This one is all about the most valued commodity on earth for a while, salt. What was so damn good about it? the only method of refrigeration you know this thing was coveted for a minute you know i'm going to assault you all with the facts thank you guys for staying tuned for a little bit of a filler edition as i did warn you but we got to learn a little bit of history thank you the listener i'll see you all in seven short days my name is nick munez later <laughs>